Hello, and welcome to the Flourish Podcast, where we at the Palouse Conservation District interview farmers, ranchers, and researchers on topics in conservation agriculture. also known as Farmers Leading Our United Revolution in Soil Health, is a farmer-led conservation innovation project to support the widespread adoption of soil health practices by integrating cover crops and livestock into farming operations. The ambitious purpose of Flourish is to not only regenerate our soils, but also our rural communities by creating opportunities for younger generations to return to productive, sustainable farms. On this podcast, we bring you updates from on-farm trials, research findings, and advice from farmers. Hello, I'm Ryan Boylan, the host of the Flourish podcast. I'm here today with Jody Prout. Hi, everyone. Our, she's our co-host. And uh, Jason Bishop, who's a farmer at uh, Living Heritage Farms in Edwall, Washington. Hello. Glad to be here. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today, Jason. Um, would you mind just talking a little bit about your farming operation? Sure. I am fairly new to this farming operation. I grew up on this farm and it was uh, in 2016 that we left the west side of the state and then came to the farm. And so I'd be my wife, Jill, and our four kids. At the time, it was only three. <laughs> and uh, we, we just uh, wanted to have a different experience for our kids growing up and then in their childhood. And so it's not many children that get to experience growing up on a farm, and we thought we'd like to to provide that for them and so we sold our house and moved over here and and the rest is now history <laughs> that's great so yeah we we the farm ground is we is all dry land we farm 1500 acres about 13 inches of rain we're kind of on the border of annual cropping and uh a three three-year rotational program so we're ex- experimenting with doing annual cropping and we're doing okay. We had a tough year in the drought year, but uh, it's, it's working out so far. What, so what would be your um, like typical crop rotation then? Typical crop rotation would probably have been winter wheat, spring wheat. Back when I was in high school, it would have been barley. And then followed by uh, fallow. And then back to winter wheat. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we're really excited you're here because um, you were the Flourish program kind of came was one of your brain children. <laughs> yeah, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I I was listening to a bunch of podcasts about regenerative agriculture, and then I don't know how I came across it, but I saw the opportunity that USDA was putting on their website for on farm trials, and I'm like, hey, I'm a farm, I'm a farmer, I could do a trial. And so I walked into my uh, my conservation district office with this harebrained idea that I was going to write a grant, having no experience writing grants at all. And I didn't really even know what I was getting into. But um, Kristen Balco was there at the time, and she was very gracious and entertaining the idea. And she kind of gave me some resources of what I could do to write it. I don't know if they really expected me to actually finish writing it and actually <laughs> submitting it. But... <laughs> Uh, we put it all together and um, we got it off like the hour before the deadline and submitted that first year in 2019. And it, at the time, it was a very small program. It was just my farm. 
So we wanted to implement the soil health management protocols and do that to the fullest extent, including integration of livestock. That was really the priority. And I wanted to do that in a way that would demonstrate for the region that, hey, this could work, you know, and then have that shared because I really believe that it would work. And so the first year we submitted, it was very small, just my farm. The second year, I think Lincoln County and Palouse County got in touch with each other and it got much larger. I think it went to three states at that point. Yeah, and there was many, many farmers involved. And then we weren't awarded that year. And then the, the third year submission, uh, it apparently was just right. So I kind of like think it's like Goldie Bears or Goldilocks and the Three, three Bears. bears. Yeah, yeah. So you, yeah, too small, too big, just right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so um, for those of you that don't know the, what the Flourish Project is all about, it stands for Farmers Leading Our United Revolution in Soil Health, and that was an acronym that Jason actually came up with. I was very late at night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah. Um, and currently there's 27 farmers participate, or farms participating in Idaho, Washington, and Oregon, and uh, the goals of the program were to promote the adoption of regenerative uh, agricultural practices and the, that included uh, four potential practices was uh, cover cropping in place of fallow uh, cover crops interceded with commodity grains and then integrating cattle into both of those um, and we just finished our first year of seeding which is really exciting <laughs> yeah um, yeah and then uh, what we're trying to do is we're going to collect soil health data uh, economic data and s do some sociological uh, surveys of the participants um, and share that all that information with the public through a bunch of outreach and education uh, materials. So this could be this podcast, <laughs> uh, field tours, and we're going to have like a annual cropping symposium where we'll talk about what we've learned and not haven't learned or are learning, I guess. Yeah. And I, I think it's great to have this opportunity because as a farmer, when you're trying these things, um, you sometimes feel like an island out there by the, yourself, and you see it working in other areas of the nation, and you would like to think it would work in your area, but there's a lot of risk still involved. And so I was really excited to be able to have this program be able to come alongside of me and de-risk some of this, because I still have obligations for my landlords, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I you know, pulling 30 acres out of the farm isn't that big a deal, but it takes a lot of time and effort that I wouldn't normally spend doing some of these trials. Yeah, that's a good point. And we should, I should also say that it's just 30 acre trials on most of the farms. And then we're comparing them to sort of like a business as usual crop rotation um, and like doing the economics and soil health analysis on that stuff. So we'll see what happens. I, I, yeah. I think we'll, <laughs> hopefully we'll learn a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. Do you think you could talk, I mean, since you grew up on the farm, could you talk a little bit about like the history of agriculture in the yeah, region? Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe I'll talk specifically with my family as I'm aware of it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm the fifth generation farmer. So my great, great grandfather came over from Germany and he uh, eventually made his way over to Spokane. He's a carpenter. And a lot of the economy at that time was... Um, it was agrarian. So you were somehow tied to the land in some shape or another. 
And so he, for some reason, ended up in Edwall, and he started a creamery. Hmm. And so he was collecting milk from the farms. And I don't know what motivated him to do this, but they ended up buying a farm. And this would have been shortly before World War I, because I know that my uh, his sons would have been drafted into the, into the war, except be my great-grandfather he ended up uh, going to university of washington and getting his engineering degree but he was like a few classes short they needed he was about ready to lose his exemption and his mom did not want him to go over to europe so she made him come back and work on the farm because then you could continue that Uh draft exemption which was kind of interesting that is interesting and uh but the practices back then you know you're it's all horse-drawn the mechanization of agriculture hadn't really happened yet. And that, that process of going from neighbors with, you know, 200 acres, a family could survive on 250 acres at the time. And they would work together, share equipment. Uh, A threshing machine would come into the area and they would go from farm to farm to farm threshing everybody's wheat, they'd sack it up, put it on the wagons, get into town, it goes on the train and, 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 and into Spokane where it gets milled. That radically changed as you came up to World War II and you really saw the mechanization of uh, tractors. And uh, my grandpa was telling me how there was uh, programs to trade mules in for tractors. Whoa. And they, there was like a really, there was a defining point where... People were kind of tired of shoveling horse manure around, so <laughs> and dealing with that. So there was really an appeal to do that. Uh, but what happened then is to our rural economies is all the labor associated with the pre-mechanized agriculture. Uh, it's it starts to free up a lot of labor, and so the populations like when you look at Lincoln County, you'll actually see the population is less today than it was a hundred years ago. Hmm which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so World War II, of course, uh, making bombs, it, uh, the Haber-Bosch process allowed uh, fertilizer to be made very cheaply. And so uh, the Green Revolution happened, and so that allowed uh, farmers to mechanize and then to use inputs to double their fertility. So you went from... 15 to 20 bushels per acre to 40 and 60 and we you know we up from there uh, a lot of the practices such as um uh rotations with leguminous crops uh, like sweet clover and peas that, that's all kind of went in the that's all part of the past now because you could s- provide your inputs with these synthetic chemicals and then um you know as you kind of move through history, you, you you have choices you make as a farmer, like my grandpa did. Uh, I think he started farming probably in the early 50s, and he had the choice during his life, do I, do I buy a bigger tractor or do I find another hired man? Because uh, if, you, if you're going to take on more ground, you have to make these choices. And it made sense to him at the time just to get a bigger tractor. So over time, we just see the rural economies shrinking and shrinking. 
And you get to the point now where, like in Edwall, when I was growing up, there was probably uh, in in the city center, uh, the kind of the town hall, if you will, you would see maybe 40, 50 families. And now you're probably around 10, 12. As people retire, they move and the and parents encourage their kids to go to a four-year university, go to the city, make some money. That's what my parents encouraged us to do. <laughs> nice. And uh, yeah, so it's it's I, it's been interesting watching Edwall, a town that used to have a thriving. I mean, it wasn't thriving, I guess, but it had a gas station, it had a grocery store, it had a hardware store, an automotive repair, a little restaurant. None of those are left. Yeah, the uh, agrochemical facility is still there and the elevator and a school but um, beyond that it's it's just kind of dried up because there's just not people here anymore mm-hmm. so yeah like i really like what you're mentioning where flourish is not just intended into regenerating uh, our soils but regenerating our c- communities because i i really think that's important to add value to back to our farms where whether that be jobs or um for those kids that want to stay on the farm, how can they integrate uh, their families, their future families, into the into the family farm? And I, that's what I'm really excited about. Yeah. So can I go back to something you said earlier, yeah. like uh, about the legumes and the sweet clovers that yeah. were like really important? Yeah. I saw this. Uh, I was at an NRCS office when I first started my job. This was like seven years ago, and there was these big photos of cattle grazing sweet clover. Oh. In like the 1940s, maybe. Yeah, but it seems like everybody wants to move back in that direction, <laughs> or like all the folks that are participating in the project. Like, I mean, so I guess maybe one of my questions, like this was the the grant was your idea, yeah, and was what was the motivation for that? I I, I wanted to prove out these ideas mm-hmm. that we've seen to separate ourselves from over time. Like my farm's name's living heritage. The idea was that there's, there's a heritage, there's like a history. And I wanted to bring that back to life and and to show that that worked. And so that's why my wife and I named our farm what we did, but uh, sweet clover is an amazing plant. (laughs) So (laughs) I, I did, I did a trial one. One year, this is this is all off, and there's no grants for this. Yeah, I'm just experimenting. So yeah, I companion crop sweet clover with, uh, I think it was just a spring wheat, and that it was it was really cool because that sweet clover would just simmer below the heads down in the understory, and I was able to combine that off the top. And I thought, oh, that's neat, that's great. Well, the next year. I came back. It's a biennial plant. Yeah. So this sweet <laughs> clover right? is a monster. Yeah. I mean, this this sweet clover was probably uh, in April, May time period. It was probably already up two feet. Yeah. And then by the time I went back to check it in late May Memorial time period, it was probably four feet. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, I was getting worried. Like, what am I going to do with this? And uh, I should have swathed it and hate it, got mm-hmm. it out of there at that time. I didn't. I let it go. And by the time middle of June, it was probably eight feet tall. Yeah, just, that's uh, amazing. Uh, yeah. just a buzzing, humming. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, amazing mass of biomass. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So then, then you have to figure out what you're going to do. With it. I ended up combining some of it for seed. Oh, cool. 
and I tried hanging it. My my swather did not like that. <laughs> yeah, and there's apparently there's something. Um, there's a mold that can develop on the leaves of sweet clover uh. that is the same compound in Coumadin, so it's a blood thinner. So if your sweet clover hay gets wet and you feed it to cattle, oh no, they could like bleed out and die. Apparently, that's crazy. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, me neither. Just a word of caution. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> at least, at least research it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's great. That's all that knowledge that doesn't get passed passed down through the generations. Yeah. 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 You know, it's it's we've only been like three, four years removed. We call what we do conventional egg, mm -hmm. but really, it's very unconventional. Yeah. I mean, the way yeah. we've done it for centuries prior, that's conventional. Yeah. Yeah. This is a little bit novel right now what we're doing. Yeah, another thing that you mentioned earlier was um, just like one of the reasons that you're excited is so you can talk to other farmers about mm -hmm. and learn from each other. Yeah. Yes, and most of the people that I talk to, like everybody wants to figure out how to integrate cover crops here in like the Palouse region in general, mm -hmm. but it's been so hard. Could yeah. you talk about maybe like a few of those challenges? Or So I think one of our, there's a few challenges I see. One, they are viewed as uh, stealing moisture. And because we're dryland farmers, any amount of rain is a precious resource. Mm -hmm. So uh, I forget the equivalence. I, I think WSU's done a study on this, but like one inch of rain equates to like five bushels of wheat or something like that. So there's, there's right out the gate, you're looking at a crop that is going to be pulling moisture from the soil in lieu of a crop that you could potentially put there and make cash crop off it. So that's, that's leads me to my second point is cover crops. You aren't paid for them. There's no return. Mm -hmm. And so between the, the water usage, which would affect this, um, the following crop mm -hmm. and between the lack of money you receive when you have it in the ground, I think that, that's a lot of red flags for farmers right out the gate. Mm -hmm. So the thing I wanted to show is that maybe there is a way you can make some money off the crop, and that was by utilizing it for cattle grazing. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think the livestock integration piece is really important. Yeah. And then I was really happy to see the Flourish Grant put some sensors in to kind of look at the water usage and see how it compares to the business as usual, the yeah. adjacent. Yeah, and this year, like the first year, we only put sensors in the cover crop field. So yeah. typically we're just seeing the water go away in the soil. Yeah. <laughs> but then, so lesson learned, next year we're going to put it put several in those business as usual type yeah. fields too so we can compare the two, yeah. which would be cool to see. Yeah, I, I think it's you're going to see it go down in both of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> It'd be interesting to compare. A fallow, like a traditional a fallow, fallow field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's another, you know, historical historical point of interest to me is that the um, the concept of fallow specifically um the dirt mulch fallow mm -hmm. it's the idea that you can you can take a rod weeder through the field in the summer and cut off the capillary action of that moisture wicking up into the atmosphere mm -hmm. and creating that that duff that dirt mulch on the surface and then later come in with your deep drills and then drop that seed right on that moist soil and get it to grow. That's that, that, that was one of the, you know, when the no-till concepts came out, 
people didn't think that it would work because you didn't have that dust mulch mm-hmm. to stop that transpiration. But it's, it's, it seems to be working. And, um, but what if, if there was a way to prove that uh, plants can shield the soil too, a living, a green mulch, and protect the moisture that we have in the soil? And then also maintain soil structure and keep those roots uh, bringing in uh, sunlight and converting it into sugars for the succeeding plants and all the soil biology. Yeah. That's what that's what we all want to trial and hope. That, yeah. You know, maybe we can convert some of these um, fallow acres into carbon sinking acres that grow biomass. Yeah. I- guess we'll see yeah yeah, yeah. and that's that, yeah that's like an open-ended question yeah it's like, yeah. really gonna work yeah yeah and like maybe one of the million dollar questions yeah i mean it seems like in washington state in general there's been a lot of talk recently about um like cap and trade and yeah carbon sequestration yeah so yeah i guess we'll yeah see what uh happens. there's what's the washington state uh small s Small farms. Oh, no, sustainable farms and fields. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, that program. Yeah, yeah. The, the the everybody's looking at this. Yeah, and and you see it being you see cover crops being done well in the Midwest, mm-hmm. and I see the concepts and I I I see value in it. The opportunities they have is that they have rains that come in the summer, where the drought here we didn't get rain from. April until almost October. And so how are you supposed to put a, establish a cover crop and then see it thrive and then be able to plant a cash crop in the fall? Mm-hmm. It's just, it's not going to happen. So yeah. there's, there's unique challenges we have with this Mediterranean climate that we are in. Yeah, definitely. We actually had a couple uh, participants or like some of the producers that are working with us. They further west, they just couldn't get mm. a cover crop in. They didn't think it would be a good idea, which it's totally fine. It's like, yeah. And maybe one of the other good things about the program is that it's a little more flexible than some of the other like traditional cost share programs put forward through NRCS. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. They're not as rigid. Rigid, yeah. Yeah. It's not just like a one size fits all yeah. shoe that everybody has to put on. Yeah, I appreciate that in in this grant. Yeah, yeah. Because I approached Tammy the other day, you know, with this idea of, like, I want to hit this thirty acres as hard as I can. Uh-huh. With, uh, so my my goals for this ground is to keep a living root in the soil as much as I can. And try to just relay cropping. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like, we did a, uh, we seeded the spring, and I'm going to put uh, peas and triticale in this fall. And then if, if that goes well, then I might try doing some summer annuals this next um, this next summer in 24 and just keep cycling plants through here. And I'm going to try to inoculate the soil with as much biology and fungus as I can. <laughs> yeah. So another thing, this is building off of what you're saying. Yeah. Like was, do you expect that you'll get any fertility benefits? Like by stimulating the biological communities in the soil i i think i just need to get the soil cycling again mm-hmm. i'm not sure how much it's going to take for the um i, I don't know I, I view i view my soil as a medium at the moment and 
in order to make the soil function, I have to provide an input. So whether that's nitrogen, phosphorus, uh, sulfur, it, it requires these things because I don't think the plant's able to, I mean, when you do a soil test, you see it's there, but why can't the plant utilize it? I think biology is that piece that will make the, make these um, elements available to the plant. And so if I can get the soil back to its natural rhythm and cycling and not treating it as a, as a, a petri dish medium that I'm just adding things in, it's like a giant lab. Mm -hmm. If I could get it to naturally do its function, then I, I, I'm hoping and praying that this is going to actually kickstart itself off and I won't require as many inputs as I've had in the past. Yeah, that's cool. Which would help pencil it out uh, at the end of the day. Yeah, so there's like, then there's like two pieces. It's like if you can get the nutrient cycling. Yeah. And then bringing cattle back in. Yeah, yeah. So we, we did cattle this summer with Flourish. We had them on there for over three weeks, I think almost four weeks. And they, there's 40 animals on 30 acres, and they gained 1.9 pounds per day. I think that's where we're at, which isn't fabulous. There's, there's some challenges we have in bringing cattle from rangeland or pasture ground and bringing them on to cover crops. That, that it's like a totally different diet. So there's going to be some adjustment they have there in their first week or two as their rumen adjusts. Mm -hmm. They might not be utilizing the feed as efficiently as they would be if they had been on it for a longer period of time. And then when they move back off the cover crop and they go back to where they're at, they're going to have to readjust their rumen again. So um, I think there's, if, if we could keep the cows on the cover crop for a longer period of time, I think there'd be, we might see some more gain. What's, this is, I, What's one of my favorite things is like ask sort of dumb questions. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do it all the time. It's literally my favorite part of my job. Uh, what's like a good rate of gain per day? Do you know? I think two is okay. I think you want to see like four. Yeah, like if you're okay. in a feedlot, I think it's up in the fours. Yeah, so we weren't quite there. Um, but I think these are replacement heifers, they weren't stalkers. Okay, so that might make a difference too. We oh, we we didn't section it up very i mean we only did three paddocks mm -hmm. and i wondered if we like grazed them tighter and we also we grazed them later in this i you know it's crazy these plants you look at them one week and they're you know just simmering and the next week you go out there after some heat and man they could be just taken off and so uh i think i think we got on the grazing a little bit behind and um I think we could have tightened up so we had smaller paddocks and might have squeezed another week out of it. Uh, okay. But, um, yeah, I, I think there's opportunities to improve on it this next year. And so the cattle that was grazing your cover crop, did you, or that they your cows or no? I worked with a neighbor, um, Jake Maurer, and he brought his cattle on. He has a great... Uh, corral system that expands it's uh, folds itself out and so he set up his corral there and we put a two wire hot wire all the way around and we had uh, yeah we put 
we divided it into thirds with a single hot wire. And the cattle did fine. They respected it and stayed on the cover crop. Um, we were fortunately close to a faucet, so we could, with a lot of hose, we were able to get the water across the road through a culvert and then up to the corral. So I think that worked out well. Um, yeah, so he, he, he ran the cows. He watches them. They're his cows. He's right next to his house. Oh, that's it worked nice. out really well yeah, for yeah, me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. I didn't have to bring my cows over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Yeah, and I guess it, maybe it's worth mentioning, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I maybe when during that Green Revolution, a lot of the fencing in, yeah. started getting taken out? It was a, I or was it, it after was that? Earl Butts. Does that sound, name sound right? I think he was the USDA. Um, who's the top dog? There's a, there's a name for the uh, conservationist. Yeah. Hugh Hammond Bennett. You know, like <laughs> who's the guy in the, the right underneath the president? He's like the secretary oh, of so interior. Ag- oh, agriculture. Agriculture. Yeah. 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 So Earl Butts was the secretary of agriculture. I think he was the one that that wanted farmers to farm fence row to fence row and take all the fences out. I think that's, and that was, um, I think in the late sixties, early seventies, because I remember watching a video Well, you're really tapping my brain. (laughs) Sorry. It's like a history test. (laughs) Expo 74, right? Spokane. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there was a guy, he's a poet, agronomist and his name is Wendell Berry Wendell Berry thank you thank you Wendell Berry (laughs) Wendell Berry came to Spokane and was talking about the impacts of uh, this kind of agriculture that Earl Butts was I think it was Earl Butts we can uh, fact check it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. please fact check <laughs> that. I don't want to accuse the wrong person <laughs> of, of that style of agriculture. And uh, it's it's a great little lecture that he gives, and I think it's on YouTube. Oh, cool. I've watched it before. Cool. And it's very interesting. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, but so the reason I was bringing that up is because now if folks want to integrate cattle back into their cropping systems it's hard because there aren't we fences. ripped all the fences yeah <laughs> yeah yeah you know in fact my dad when he first came to the farm to help my grandpa in the late 70s early 80s that was some of his early jobs were to take fences out oh interesting. i still see like corner posts yeah, yeah, and yeah. piles of barbed wire laying around yep that i knew there was a fence there yep but it's like this whole cycle of coming back to where we started yeah i even see it in like our farmhouse like we look, my, my grandpa made all these updates in the sixties. Like he dropped the ceilings that were 10 foot. It's like a craftsman home and he dropped them down to nine, whatever the standard is. And, and so that was kind of a fad. And then now my wife would be like, Hey, let's bring it back to the way it was originally. So <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I feel like I'm undoing everything my grandpa did. all his life. <laughs> That's really funny. Um, yeah. And then I guess the other thing worth mentioning, uh, is that most people don't have experience with cattle at all. Yeah. I mean, we've really segregated the industry. Like I, my family specialized in growing wheat. There's families that specialize in growing beef. So there's families that do dairy. And so we really had like these silos and we, we don't often talk to each other. And so to see like, maybe we shouldn't be putting 
cattle into a small area and feeding them out. Maybe there's an opportunity to put them onto uh, acres, mm-hmm. crop ground, and instead of trying to manage their waste in a feedlot where you it's a detriment, why don't we put the waste on a field where it's a benefit? Mm-hmm. So I think there's these cool opportunities where we can break down some of these silos yeah. and collaborate with other agriculture industries. Yeah, it's, and it's been really interesting like talking to all the other folks that have been participating and the arrangements that they have with whatever they're grazing. So last Friday I was out on a field and that farmer had 800 goats grazing. Oh, nice. Yeah. Like a lot, it was a very large area. Yeah. Bigger than the 30 acres, but yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of different ways that people are going about or trying to yeah. do it. Yeah. 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 That's cool. yeah. I mean, it's another, th- I've, I've, I've had a few other thoughts about grazing, like, um, because we got on it late, we we windrowed these paths to where the fence were going to be set because mm-hmm. there's a challenge with dry soil and trying to get a hot wire to work. Because mm-hmm. the the plants will just uh, suck, suck all the the voltage out. So we windrowed it, but my rancher made the observation that where we had those windrows, the cattle ate the windrows. Hmm. And then I'm looking at it now, and there's more green up in those areas where the, where the windrows were at. Interesting. Because yeah. it, I, what I think it did is it stopped that plant from going reproductive. And so the plant didn't have the opportunity to set a seed. So if you could stop the plant from setting a seed with a cow or with a swather, then it wants to come back and regrow. And so you get like a second opportunity. And so I've, I've done that before up here where I've, I've just windrowed it. I didn't bale it. I just left it on the ground, had the cattle come in. They'll graze it off and then pull the cows off. And then the, the cover crop or grazing crop would, would regrow. And I get a second, oh, cool. second feast off of it. Wow. Second salad bar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so thinking um, about cash crops and how to make that most profitable on the farm, what um, what options have you guys explored to integrate that and make the farm more viable? So, yeah, so there's, there's a really unique opportunity we have because right now the, the buzzword in, in agriculture is regenerative. Mm-hmm. And so if, if there was a way where we could implement these principles – for soil health improvement, and then associate that with uh, a change in the nutritional quality of the food we produce, then I think there'd be an opportunity to um, market our product as uh, to a higher value. Because right now, there's only one lever that a farmer can pull to get more money out of his field, and that's yield. (laughs) There's, there's There's nothing else we can do to make uh, the bottom line better in our books. And so if there was an opportunity to do these regenerative practices and be rewarded for them because people saw the value in regenerative uh, food, then that would be really cool. And I don't know if that exists yet, but I would really like to see that happen. Uh, I have two more questions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> one is another dumb one. How do you, how have you been deciding what cover crop you'll seed? 
Oh, okay. So I think there's there's one major decision point is when, well, yeah, when do I want to plant? Mm-hmm. And then what do I want the cover crop to do for me? So if I want it to be for grazing, uh, I'm going to put, I think I'm going to do more grasses in my mix. And if I want it to be for fixing nitrogen, I'm going to do some more leguminous crops. And I also need to be aware of like the, um, there's going to be seed that it just, it's just going to happen. The plant's going to set seed and that seed's going to fall on the soil. And what am I going to be putting in after the cover crop too? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Because I'll have to be able to, uh, have a, I don't want to get docked for any volunteer cover crop that shows up in my cash crop next year. Um, but I think the biggest decision point is like, when am I seeding? If I'm seeding in the fall and needs to overwinter, well, that's going to be, um, something like a winter pea. Uh, I'm doing triticale. Um, I could probably pull off something like a turnip if I wanted to, although that would set seed next year. I don't know if I'd want to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and then, then if I'm doing an early spring planting, I'm going to do something like, um, a spring, uh, beardless spring weed. If I want it to be grazed, I could, I, I like, I'm a firm believer in just sourcing seeds that you can find close by. It mm-hmm. doesn't have to be some exotic plant from anywhere in the Eastern side of the the, the states or something if whatever you can find that's will grow mm-hmm. in in a different plant family so i like to do a brassica a grass and a legume cool and try to have different root structures mm-hmm. um so uh in, as you kind of go through those cool season plants then you then you would go into the warm seasons which would be like your sunflowers and your millets and your sorghums and and but those have issues too. If you're grazing, you want to make sure that you don't graze them in the fall when it freezes. Cause there's dangers of prussic acid yeah. poisoning. So yeah, these are all, you get, there's so many variables. <laughs> know, it's it's like, so hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really tough. Um, and since you just finished your, the first year of trials, yeah. was there anything that surprised you or you learned that you'd want to share with anyone listening? Yeah. Uh, it surprised me that I, I put a little canola in because I had some mm-hmm. and uh, it, it matured much quicker than I expected than all the, than the oats that it was predominantly oats, oats and millet, I think were the majority of it. Uh, and the canola, it set seed. Oh, probably late July. And uh, I was surprised because the cows were not interested at all. I think they ate the leaves off the lower portions, but they left the, the seed up top. And so after the cows had gone through there, I had sporadic canola plants scattered all over the field. And I was like, what am I going to do with this? And so I actually went in with the combine and pulled uh, probably almost 2,000 pounds of canola <laughs> off the top after yeah. the cows had been in through there. So that was kind of fun. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that was unexpected. Well, Jason, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Yeah, thank you for uh, doing this and, <laughs> yeah. and get, getting the word out. Yeah. Yeah, we're excited to do these trials. Yeah, and yeah, we'll be excited to hear what you learn.
Um, so yeah, this was the first of eight Flourish podcasts. Uh, stay tuned for the next one. This podcast was brought to you by the Palouse Conservation District. Funding is provided by USDA's Conservation Innovation Grants Program. To find out more information, check out the Flourish website at inwflourish.org. Thanks so much for listening and keep an eye out for our next episode.